Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Starving Art Podcast, making art in hard times. I'm Aiden, your host. I am just coming in real quick at the start here to say that my guest today is Avram Finkelstein. Guys, we got him on the show. Started with the book. We went there. We did that. And then just sent an email, and it worked. And... If that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. Um, I was super excited to get his response, super excited to talk to him, and I think the conversation went great. I learned a lot. I hope you do too. I do have to note that unfortunately, despite this amazing pop filter that I recently received from my sister, I did not connect my microphone properly, so my audio is crap frankly. But his is the best of, I think, any guests we've had. So that's really great. That'll be good to listen to. So I think that the next step for this show, now that this is episode 10, I've done 10 whole episodes of this. That's past the last podcast I did. So that's great. And it kind of means I'm doing this. I think I'm doing this, guys. So in my mind, that means next step is consistency. Y'all don't want to wait six weeks for an episode. Y'all don't want to wait months for an episode. I'm not trying to make you wait that long. So I'm going to try and do two a month, once every other week. I think that's consistent. It'll keep me honest. It'll keep me working, but not overwhelmed, which is good. And marketing. I'm really not doing great at the marketing thing. So I am hoping that you all will rise to the cause, share my work, Instagram, at Starving Art Pod, gonna make a Twitter, gonna connect it to Facebook, we're gonna get all these social networks growing, and let people know that I exist, please let people know that I'm telling these stories, that I'm giving you this information, I would be so pleased if you would, this show has meant a lot to me, even in the months that I've been doing it, and I want it to grow. I want more people to listen. I want this message to get out because at the end of the day, all I'm trying to do is provide a playbook for myself and for other people to say that life is hard. We all have struggles. We all go through things individually and collectively, but we can make work that describes our experience, that helps people feel better about their experience, and that impacts generations of people that impacts the world that changes things that helps shape the world that we want so that's what i'm going for please join me in that mission and enjoy this interview with avram finkelstein Joining me today on the show is a past subject of an episode and a senior visual artist. He was part of the Silence Equals Death Collective, the Grand Fury Collective, and has been staging his own flash collectives and pursuing his independent artwork ever since. Abram Finkelstein, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for inviting me, Aiden. I am thrilled that you're here. I wanted to start with Uh, Probably the most difficult thing that I had to tackle in the process of discussing Silence Equals Death, my show, which is 
when you created silence equals death as a political poster you didn't consider it to be a piece of art um and i'm curious if your feelings have changed on that since it's been inducted into the you know classical canon of aids activist artwork and um where you've landed on that good question the silent equals death collective the group of uh six gay men uh that created the silent equals death poster which if you're your audience hadn't heard hasn't heard your other podcast. Uh, we actually designed that poster before ACT UP started, and it became closely associated with ACT UP. But mm-hmm. I think it it actually says two things. No, knowing that distinction without a difference in terms of hi- history, anyway, mm-hmm. there is a huge amount of power to collective responses when it comes to grassroots organizing, but there's, it's also important to understand that the power of the individual voice is not to be overlooked. And that's why I, I try to help people to understand that when we designed that poster, we had no idea what kind of res- response it would have. We were organized as a political collective based on feminist consciousness raising paradigms. Um, it was not an art collective, although five out of the six of us were art directors, graphic designers, or artists. And uh, the the person who wasn't a graphic designer was a musician. So we were in the arts, but the point of the project was uh, consciousness raising around the political questions of AIDS. We explored it from a personal perspective, but it became very obvious to me after meeting for a little, for a couple of weeks, that we were also uniformly concerned with the larger questions of the way in which AIDS was being thought about in the public sphere. And that's where the idea of the poster came into play. I'm uh, both of my parents were in the American Communist Party. I, I was a part of the Student Mobilization Committee uh, against the war in Vietnam. I was pretty much born with the poster in my hands. So when it became <laughs> obvious that, well, let's just say it was in my, in my vocabulary. It was an arrow <laughs> in, my, in my quiver. It seemed to me that there were some similarities between the ways in which we communicated using the streets during the 60s and the, what, what might actually be called for when people had not yet begun talking about AIDS as a political crisis. Mm-hmm. And so much of your work has been concentrated in uh, collective output. The Silence Equals Death Collective was six gay men, as you said. Grand Fury fluctuated for a while, but had a core membership of 10 to 15 people. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I think um, we started out as an open collective. Actually, the way Grand Fury, the genesis of Grand Fury was somebody from a video collective testing the limits had been approached by Bill Olander, who was the uh, head curator at the New Museum at the time, who who saw the Silence Equals Death poster and wanted to offer the windows of the New Museum to act up. And I became the conduit for that. So in the beginning, it was an open committee in ACT UP. And 
that an initial installation let the record show, mm-hmm. there were probably about 50 people who worked on that. But, oh, um, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and it was an open committee for quite a while after that when we constituted as a collective um, and took the name Grand Fury. Uh, it was still an open committee, but it became really difficult to work with people sort of coming and going. It's really hard to develop concise messaging when you have an inconsistent attendance of, and, and don't really have a process for that. So we closed as a collective that summer, the summer after the installation. And it became, I would say, 11 core members is probably where the bulk of the work that we're known for was created by 11 people. Gotcha. What do you feel is gained and lost when you're engaging in collective work as opposed to individual work? Oh, well, that's a really good question, too. I think that, you know, as you in your initial question, you you queried about the the question of art and whether political art and art is are the same thing, which is, I think, what you're what you're driving at. Do I think of sure. this body of work as art or do I think of it as as political agit work product? Mm-hmm. I would say that most artists tend to work in isolation and don't think collaboratively. But I personally feel like there is no idea in the world that can't be improved by multiple brains. And the things that enter our public spaces that we, you know, everything from advertising to press releases to newspaper articles, every, you know, movies, television shows, all of that is done collaboratively. They They test market every message that makes it into public spaces. So... I think that the people who are involved in communications are much more familiar with the idea of collectivity than people who are, are identify as artists. Sure. And egos come into play much more in the artistic profession too. But as a dancer by passion, I am very much all for collective art because in my industry, it just doesn't get made otherwise. The choreographer isn't going to be the one on stage. Yeah, I, I do. I'm jumping ahead here, but I do workshops on collective cultural production that I refer to mm-hmm. as flash collectives. And I've done them with all sorts of groups of strangers. And I've done one or two with performance, the groups that come out of performance. Mm-hmm. And I, I start each, each session with an exercise that I refer to as a mapping exercise where we immediately begin to work by, you know, with different colored markers drawing on a scroll of paper in response to a prompt or a query. And when I was working with performance people, I couldn't help but notice how immediately everyone took to that exercise. Whereas when I've, when I've done flash collectives with art-based groups, invited Mm -hmm. by art-based groups, it sometimes takes a while to get off the ground. So I learned through that process exactly what you're talking about. Theater is collaborative. There's no way around it. Absolutely. And that's a very interesting distinction. To people outside the art world, it's easy to think of it as this one huge blob of the creative people go over there. But 
from different positions within the art world, there's such glaring differences in communication style, in individual versus collaborative expression, in uh, modalities and all of that. But in your book, you described multiple of the posters that came out of Silence Equals Death and Ground Fury as advertising. And I am very curious as to, is there something about the American mindset that responded particularly well to an advertising format? Or what did you see in the advertising model that drew you to towards using that form for communicating your message? Um, you're full of good questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm a curious one. Yeah, so I, these are, I think these are really essential to understanding communicating complex ideas in public spaces. I think you're hitting on a, a whole bunch of them. So um, the, the fact remains that art, as, we, as, we, as most people commonly think of it, is based mm-hmm. in Western European aesthetics and all of the attendant hegemonies that apply to that. And most people, even really well-educated people in the arts, are experts on what they do, but they don't know anything about the history of some other art movement. So yeah, I know absolutely. a lot about abstract expressionism. Uh, you know, I know a lot about Dadaism, but uh, I don't know that much about 19th century uh, heroic painting, for instance. <laughs> so I think the idea that museums are these spaces that are open to everyone really ignores the fact or leapfrogs over the fact that you have to know a tremendous amount of what you're looking at to even understand the art. And and then you have to also be able to afford to take off work or, you know, and pay the entrance fee. And if you want to go with your family, that's times four, you know, and then you have to get to the museum. Like all of these things are obstacles to mm-hmm. understanding art. And there's um, when I was growing up, there was arts education in public school, but that Reagan made sure that that was the first thing they yeah. took away after social studies. So advertising, however, is something that we're, we actually have, we carry computers in our pockets that follow the algorithms of our searches that sure. force, force feed us advertising. So the truth of the matter is that advertising is a much more egalitarian way of communication than art is. And so in considering how to effectively get the message out to broad swaths of New York, you focused in on that method as a way to cut through those limitations and barriers to access. Yeah, well, if we're talking about silence equals death, of course, so that was a year before we we began working on that poster a year before ACT UP, the AIDS Mm -hmm. Coalition to Unleash Power, uh, formed. And then Grand Fury was formed the year after that. So the practices of the the silence equals death collective and Grand Fury are distinctly different in that regard. Sure. But silence equals death, we we worked for almost nine months on that poster. Now, it wasn't the only thing we were doing. We met once a week, and a fair amount of that time was talking about our personal experiences of HIV-AIDS and our concerns and our fears and our worries and our concerns. 
But we did end up working on that poster in the aggregate for almost nine months. And one of the first things when we were talking about what the poster should be like, one of the members of the collective, Charles Kraloff, who was raised in a lesbian feminist commune, his mother oh, wow. <laughs> okay. was, was a, in New York circles, a very well-known dyke. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the first things uh, that we discussed was, you know, I brought up the question of the ways in which the streets were used in the 60s to organize. And Charles said, well, this is, the, this is Reagan's America. Like, the, no one's going to stand on a street corner and read a manifesto. It can't be text. Sure. It can't be text heavy. It can't be didactic. And I think, you know, I, I don't know what other members of the collective thought about that conversation, but it obviously stuck out in my mind because I'm, I'm telling you about it today in 2021. <laughs> it, I think it was a very acute observation about the ways in which advertising spaces functioned at that particular point in time. And they still function that way. Social, the social spaces of urban streets or even small town streets function very differently than other spaces. And I don't think people have the appetite to stand there and read like a tome. Sure. It needs to be immediate, concise, it can be didactic, but it, the combination of image and text works much more effectively because you have a chance to double up on the kinds of codes that you're using. And if you look at most advertising, if it isn't a pharmaceutical ad or an ad on television for a pharmaceutical, uh, you know, where they have to list every side effect in order to avoid sure. litigation, most ads aren't text heavy. So those were the initial conversations that went into silence equals death before the AIDS activist movement movement even existed were fully cognizant of this this reality. And speaking from 2021, do you feel like the streets still serve that same function of being an open marketplace of ideas or have they been subsumed by social media or the internet and do you feel like that function of the streets could be reactivated well i don't think it's ever been deactivated and i think that we you know the idea of the ways in which social media is more efficacious than communicating in the streets has also been force-fed us by social media it's basically social media is a delivery device and the the question is the content. What are you saying? Whether it's in a poster or in, you know, in your pocket, on your pocket computer. So I think the distinction is part of the way late capitalism functions. We're told, mm-hmm. we're directed to which social media platforms are more efficacious, and we're directed to them based on the actual kind of phone. That we have, whether it's sure. you know a, an iPhone or an Android, it, that's becoming less and less. The the layers of that are less and less distinct as people who pay for advertising and use <laughs> algorithms to reach their audiences have discovered the universality of the of the efficacy of it. But I think the the streets people still have bodies, and if if you're fortunate enough to have a home, you have neighborhoods and people still mm-hmm. use the streets and public spaces, even if it's 
a shopping mall if you're in a small rural community or the actual streets of New York, which even during the height of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, during its worst moments, which started in April and are now peaking again, people Mm -hmm. walk their dogs. They go to grocery stores. The streets are still activated. And I think if if they weren't, no one would advertise movies on the sides of buses. In New York City, every bus has advertising space that people mm-hmm. pay good money to be on. So I think the idea that the streets are no longer vital ways of communicating is fallacious and based on, on ideas that have been solidified through social media. But if you live in a city like New York or even in L.A., L.A. has bus advertising on. I'm sure your audience has seen buses that are completely skinned. The entire bus is covered with self-adhesive vinyl that advertises a movie or television show or a grocery chain or, you know, advertising concerns would not be paying good money for those spaces if they were not efficacious. Yeah, that makes sense. And I suppose it does point to, it points to how I have been influenced by having social media for, let's say, half my life now as one of the primary forms of communication among my social group. But you're absolutely right that follow the money and they wouldn't be spending the money if it wasn't having an impact. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I I have a pocket computer also. I, I a lot of the work that you're referring to, the Silence Equals Death Collective and Grand Fury work, we actually had to lay those out by sending typesetting out to printers. And then, you know, we would get a V-Lots and we would, with wax, apply it to a, a, an artboard and put a vellum over it and send it to a printer. There was no such thing as computer graphics. And in fact... Yeah. So some of the work, like the New York Times, which was an actual newspaper, we cut those lines of text into strips (laughs) and laid them (laughs) out by hand. So I'm a person who has, uh, I'm old enough to have lived through many different uh, techniques for creating work, but I use my iPhone. I, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in the early days of cell phone technology, I had clients in in England, and England adopted cell phones way before America did. And everyone I knew had a cell phone in in London. And I kept thinking, why the fuck would anyone need a phone in their pocket? Like, what you know, do you really need to be that in touch that you can't miss one call? (laughs) You know, we have answering machines for that. So I didn't think I needed one until I got one. And then when you were able to do research, it it turned into a computer. The the phone turned into a computer. I thought, well, why do I need a computer in my pocket? And now I don't know how I lived without those things. (laughs) So it's possible. (laughs) Funny how it transforms. Yeah, it's possible. I think it's possible to know all of those things and to respond to all of those things. And I think even people who are digital natives and tend to think of the world that way, you respond to advertising in the streets also. You're just not, you're not tuned in to the effect that it has on you. Yeah, that's a good warning for all of us to continually be aware of how that impacts us as well. I have a pair of questions that I think uh, juxtapose each other really well, but the 
first one, um, you were very open in the book that you wanted violent action to push for progress on the AIDS crisis. You wanted riots during the 1988 election cycle. Can you talk about how you got to that point? Well, it's very funny you should say this because I did a an interview just the other day, a Zoom interview uh, with The New Yorker about a project I'm doing in the, a public project in the windows of Playwrights Horizon on 42nd Street in New York. And we were talking about this. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit, bit about it because I think you'll, it, it relates very much to your, your background, but also some of the things that you wanted to talk about. But as I was explaining that aspect to the journalist from the New Yorker, I was very self-conscious about it, and I, I made an apology for it because of what happened on the 6th in the Capitol building. I, I think that talking about political violence at this very moment has a very different ring to it than it does of somebody who is a political activist as a teenager and in the, the 60s. But because there were no political conversations about public responses to HIV AIDS in 1986, when we were working on that poster before the AIDS activist moment of ACT UP, I actually had it in my head because uh, I was raised in a world where people used the streets for all kinds of resistance, and some of it was radical from the weather underground to the riots at the Democratic Convention to the burning of cities after the assassination of Martin Luther King. The things that are happening now have happened before. We should never forget that. Uh, Although America has a tendency to obliterate the past. So I think that it was a gesture that I was very much aware of based on my own history of resistance, of political resistance during the anti-war movement. So the the poster was, the Silence Equals Death poster was supposed to be the first in a series of three that would call for riots during the election in 1988, the presidential election. Mm-hmm. And in between the making of that poster and the 19, and that presidential election, ACT UP formed and was enacting radical resistance on many different levels all the time. And it became moot. The gesture became moot. Well, in some ways, I'm glad that it did, but it's not like you weren't raising hell. To contrast with that, though, you also mentioned in the book how ACT UP was a place where you could fall in love with yourself again. Mm -hmm. And that line struck me because in the midst of all this chaos and danger and a very real war, as you described it, I'm, I'm very curious how you were able to find that self-love and reconnect with yourself in that way. Well, you're, you're just, you're hitting every nail right on the head. I think that the individual political agency is incredibly emotional. And a lot of the, as we've already discussed, the advertising appeals, these sort of very terse posters and billboards that we came to make about this, were meant to appeal to various forms of social responsibility and emotionality surrounding political questions. That's what political activism is. You saw it at its worst, 
on January 6th in the Capitol when people were literally threatening to hang elected officials. Like they may, may not have voted for those people, but millions of other people did. Yeah. So what, you know, what does it mean that you want to kill someone who was elected by your neighbor? That's very, that's a, a, a very extreme version of the emotionality attached to individual agency. Mm-hmm. But I think what I was talking about in the book was that working collaboratively with, with um, there were hundreds of people in ACT UP. And we had meetings every week. And then each of us you know, had meetings almost every night the rest of the week working on particular issues, treatment issues, outreach questions, um, expanding the definition of of AIDS from the Centers for Disease Control to include women, Mm -hmm. uh, impacts on uh, communities of color. So there was so much activism surrounding this communal idea of power of empowerment that it it it's impossible to not see the heroic nature of agency and i think that's what i'm referring to and i think that it's true now i think that the you know the events of this past year as terrible as they've been and as triggering as they are for somebody like myself who's been through generations of conversations about race, for instance, the fact that we should still be having them, you know, I'm 68. And I should, I've been aware of these conversations since, since I was born, I was born into a family that included people of color. Mm -hmm. So to have to live your entire life and see the, the same questions rising is triggering. There's, there's no other way to, to think of it. But the truth is, the America that we're headed for is the America I have dreamt of my entire life. And as as painful as it is, and it's more painful for people with less privilege than I have as a white man, I feel inspired by it as well. And I think that that's, that's a part of what's going on, is this dying gasp of white supremacy juxtaposed against the idea that we're actually headed in the right direction. And may it continue to head in the right direction. I am very curious how being a part of this activist lineage and particularly being a part of different affinity groups over the course of your career has impacted your outlook when it comes to life, but your art and your activism? I think, to be honest with you, every single, even the, the, I'm including this conversation we're having now, like Mm -hmm. every, every exchange of ideas is a part of an individual's political growth and politicization isn't this end point that everyone has to get to the same end point. It's, it's a process of taking the next step for yourself. Mm -hmm. So I, when I teach, I'm learning, I feel like I'm learning more than I'm actually imparting when I teach. I think it's just the nature of living your life with your eyes open that you can't help but be expanded by the ideas that other people have. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's so much of the reason that I'm trying to engage in these sorts of conversations. 
in one of Grand Fury's posters, the tagline, art is not enough, was very prominently displayed. Where do you see art falling in terms of affecting social change? And where do you see the limits of that? Well, I think that goes back to these sort of, you know, these hegemonies and hierarchies of institutional art as opposed to street or street art or art in public spaces. And to downshift again to the project with Playwrights Horizons. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the beginning of the pandemic, when it hit New York and New York was hit hard and hit very early on, mm-hmm. Lu- the Louis Vuitton boutique in Soho, for some reason, decided they needed to board up all of their windows. It wasn't like what happened last Wednesday was not on the table in April. Um, well, it was, but it, it, it wasn't openly on the table. So my question, I had two questions. One was, why the fuck are you doing that? <laughs> and the other was, give me that space. I want to use that space. Oh, and sure. somebody who I'd collaborated with, um, David Zinn, who's a production designer for Broadway, I had worked with him on another project, and he, he asked the same question that I was asking of like, what does it mean to have the most expensive, not the most expensive real estate in the world, but up there? Sure. What does it mean to have it shuttered? What, do we, what can we do with this space? Mm-hmm. And I contacted him and I said, actually, I have an idea. And he, <laughs> he introduced me to the people of Playwrights Horizon who were doing a series of public installations in their windows at street level. Mm-hmm. And it's artists like we're starting with a subway and street artist, Jilly Ballistic and Dred Scott is working on a project. And uh, Ken Gonzalez Day, uh, who's an L.A. artist, is doing another installation. We have a a whole series of works that are being installed. And I think, the, uh, sorry, I've, I, I got lost in describing this. What was your, what was the question? No problem. Um, I was asking in terms of art affecting social change, what role do you see it playing and where do you see the limits of art making for creating that change? Right. So, so um, Playwrights Horizon is an example of the ways in which street can be deployed, but also overlaps with institutional questions. Mm -hmm. When we approached Playwrights Horizon, they were, uh, Adam Greenfield, who's the artistic director there, was struggling with the question of what does it mean to have your voice removed, to have the theater shuttered, Broadway is closed, and what is it, what is theater for? So he was asking the exact same questions, which is, very distinct from the kinds of institutional questions that, let's say, the Whitney Museum has Mm -hmm. or uh, the New Museum has. Each institution has their own relationship to questions of social engagement and access and programming that explains the social responsibility of art. And some institutions succeeded it and other ones succeeded it less well. This is an example where an institution with tremendous insight that was, has been struggling with the questions of artists of color in relation to Broadway, mm-hmm. to theater making, and is very committed to, to doing that work. And their programming actually is very much about this. This was the perfect project for them. 
But before we, I approached David and we, he suggested Playwrights Horizon for the exact reason I just mapped out, I had approached several museums in, in New York with the same idea. And there was interest, but not action. Sure. So I think that the, I think the, the question of how in, art institutions or culture-making institutions are relating to social justice questions is very diverse but i think everyone is everyone in every institution that i deal with is very acutely aware that we're at a moment in transition and these issues need to be addressed yeah i mean if you're in an arts organization right now and you're not aware that we're in that sort of a moment i don't know what to tell you but you talked about not only with engaging with these museums where there was interest but not action, but also in the book reaching back to even act up engaging with the CDC and the FDA, uh, you talked about a sort of neutralizing effect that institutional engagement has on those people who are seeking radical change. Do you still feel like that's an acute issue? And um, in your work, how have you sought to counteract that force? Well, I think the reason why my focus has always been on art and cultural production in public spaces is to circumnavigate those questions. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone has a board of directors. Every institution has people within it who are very much want to go in the direction of exploring these things and people who on their boards who, like the Whitney you know, as we most recently discovered, had a board member that was involved in the manufacture of the tear gas that was used on the border against people trying to enter the country in Texas. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's part of the reality or the reticence to get involved. But then also many institutions have been boycotted for attempting to make work in this area, but doing it uh, in a tone-deaf way or a flat-footed way or an, a non-inclusive way. So I think that it's the, these are the questions about, that are on the table for all of us culturally, not just people who, who make culture, but people who, who just watch TV. Um, we're all becoming aware of the frailties of expanding our ideas about what culture means. And I think that's very much been activated during the Trump administration by the Trump administration and who has been intentionally poking at all of these retrograde ideas about what America is or should be. Mm -hmm. And the idea of returning to, you know, the Jim Crow America is not something that's going to play very well in the new America. No, no, we it's are not. In a period of we're in a period of transition. That's why I say the, when I said we're headed for the, the world we're headed for is the one I've been dreaming of my whole life. And you said, well, let's hope that that continues. I, I'm, I firmly believe that there is no turning back on this. Mm -hmm. That is where we are heading. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be suffering and death on the way there. And the pandemic responses in America are a pretty good indication of that. Yeah. I think the, rapidi the rapidity of transmission of COVID-19 
takes all of the lessons of the work that I did coll- collaboratively during the, the last pandemic in America, it, it makes it seem like child's play compared to what's happening now. Because it was happening within certain communities that were sequestered. Sure. This is happening to everyone and it's happening happening quickly. And as you say, there is no going back from this radical change because it revealed so much about how the status quo was repressing so many people. Yeah, I think in a way, like the it's now more out in the open. Like mm-hmm. people of color have known this America their entire lives. But white Americans are just beginning to realize, oh, that's what they're talking about. That's what happened, you know, after the when the Floyd demonstrations began in the city and the or, amazing organizing of Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. which was fully conscious of these, has been fully conscious of and organizing around these questions. Stacey Abrams didn't come out of the blue. She was working for 10 years on organizing against voter suppression in Georgia. Sure. So I think the, the rest of America is, or, or I should say white, there's a, a larger portion of white America that's beginning to understand the lie of the American mind about who we are. And in a way, the terrors of these past four, four years have made it undeniable. This is who we are. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? What are we prepared to do about it? Yeah, I feel prepared to do something about it. It is great for me to hear in this conversation, but also in the book, this idea of gesture over accomplishment or objectness. You described how ACT UP was a series of gestures as opposed to a codified organization or an object in itself. And I want to know how can we encourage the world or each other to adopt that attitude of making a gesture as opposed to striving for accomplishments or an object to say, look, I made this. Well, I think that that goes back to the very first questions you had and every almost everything we talked about uh, during this conversation. The, the fact is that when we talk about the neutralizing impact of working within institutional systems like like the NIH or the CDC. And, and one could say the same thing about history, the way in which we think about our own history and the, and the documentation of it. Mm-hmm. It's a project that is based on resolution. Mm-hmm. Resistance is based on continued agency. And that that is essentially the difference. So the difference between the actual silence equals death poster and the fact that people responded to it is the difference between the gesture and the 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 object i actually uh, i placed my papers at nyu's Fowles library and when one of the reasons i did was i i used to have a stack of silence equals death posters that i kept from the first printing oh, and wow. over the decades i'd been giving them away like every small community center or lesbian and gay organization that wanted to show it, I, I would just, when they came to returning, I would say, keep it. Mm-hmm. And so it became very obvious to me that we live in a world that marks things with objects. That's a reflection of capitalism. And 
the performance, which is temporal, mm-hmm. the world you come from, is about physical bodies in space in an instant performing and involved in dialogue with an audience that is ephemeral. There's mm-hmm. video now. Everyone posts videos of every performance, but it's very different from, a, from being in a room with other people experiencing something. So I think if we, we think about things expansively, we'll realize that gestures are very much a part of the ways in which ideas are communicated. That, that's always been true. And it's one of the glories of tribal affiliation. And as we're noticing now, it's one of the terrors of tribal affiliation is the, the, the fact that an exchange of ideas exists in every community, in every family, all the time. We just don't think of it that way because nobody's getting paid for the object that's the product of it. Sure. But I sort of am looking at this current political moment of transition as the payment for the object of a century, centuries of strife surrounding in the context of this conversation, surrounding race in particular. We're finally mm-hmm. seeing the result, the the object. That doesn't, as a Jew, I'm very aware that you things that can be given can also be taken away. So I don't mm-hmm. think, again, the object of political progress or progressive political uh, organizing, I don't think the, the object of it is the end point because it never ends. It's a responsibility we all, we all have to our social world to continue to engage because if you turn your back things can you know the voting rights act was dismantled very recently mm-hmm. by the supreme court yeah it is a continual push you mentioned in that lance last answer that yes there was the object of the silence equals death poster but the response and the engagement with it was so much a part of what it became. And that really goes for all of your works throughout the acute pandemic era, I think I can safely call it. How did you keep a level head in the midst of people graffitiing over your work on bus sides and uh, the rejoinder text for silence equals death getting axed so it can be buttons and t-shirts and seeing Peter Staley wearing the silence equals death t-shirt on crossfire and everyone having, you know, positive or negative, but strong reactions to your work. How did you manage to, number one, stay sane with it being out in the world like that? But number two, how did you, how did you give it away so freely? Well, the way I, I dealt with some of the questions that you mapped out in the, the beginning of asking this question is I expected it, anticipated it, and it was intentional. Mm-hmm. The, the question of how do I deal with people misusing it or misunderstanding it is that, as, as I was saying about politicization, consciousness raising is entirely different from what I meant to say about it. We, sure. we designed it, the six of us designed it, but, but silence equals death was created by the people who responded to its call. It was created by ACT UP, mm-hmm. actually. So it's a part of the process of 
working in public spaces or thinking about your work in the, in the ways that we're discussing now is the expectation that individuals will have different responses to it. That's the point of it. The only w- ways in which it can be disorienting is if you only work in isolation or only think of your work in terms of the way you meant it, it could be very disorienting to experience decades of having people misunderstand it. Or in in one particular example of that is because of the conflation of the silence equals death collective act up and then later grand fury and my involvement in both of the, all three of those Mm -hmm. collective endeavors, the lines of authorship have been, have been blurred by history. So if you read, if you're a researcher or a historian working on this movement, you read Doug Crimp's AIDS Demographics, everything he said about who made that work and when and what it was was true because he was a member of ACT UP. But whereas if you use, for instance, Richard Meyer wrote a great chapter in But Is It Art about Grand Fury and conflated the, the work. So if you misattributed silence equals death, to Grand Fury. In some parts of the chapter, he makes it clear that there were distinctions, mm-hmm. but the caption to the image is unclear and it's attributed to Grand Fury. So if you're a, research, a historian using uh, Richard Myers as your source, you may have an appreh- misapprehension about it. And I think that that is just the nature of history and research and archives and you know, I've spent the last three decades, uh, before Larry Kramer died, I had a, had to explain to him that silence equals death was not designed <laughs> by Grand Fury. Oh, like wow. last year. Okay. Uh-huh. So, so that is the beauty and terror of public space and surrendering your work to it. It's exhausting to have to make that distinction, but I think it's too important to not make that distinction for the reasons that I I have already articulated to you, which is there's power in the individual voice. It's important for people to understand that. It's important for activists long after I'm dead to, if they find the sources like this conversation we're having, to realize that you don't actually need a movement in order to impact the world. And that's one of the incredibly beautiful things about covering the creation of Silence Equals Death that struck out to me how this individual expression of grief, anger, frustration with the system became this incredible collective outpouring so organically. And when you were talking, it reminded me of the line that you said you could go through all of the ACT UP oral history project and still not even begin to understand what ACT UP was as an organization and all of the outcroppings that it had. Um, I want to talk about your recent work for a little bit, but I did want to ask to go off of the four questions have you given up hope for a cure? Um, no, I haven't. And I'll tell you, there's a surprising reason why mm. that relates to this very moment in history. So Operation Warp Speed is completely misunderstood by people who are, aren't involved in the intricacies 
of research science and pharmaceutical development. Aside from Trump claiming it as a project of his, the research that enabled the COVID-19 vaccines to be developed so quickly is because people have been researching those technologies for over a decade. Mm-hmm. So so it's a misapprehension to say it was like some, somehow Trump had a part of it. it. They didn't. And a lot of it has to do with ideas that were had their genesis during the development of protease inhibitors and the way that mm-hmm. HIV functions in the body. And the way protease inhibitors, which are the pharmaceutical interventions that are a functional cure for AIDS, there's mm-hmm. no cure yet, are very similar to the way in which the COVID-19 vaccines work. They address the spike protein, which is what adheres the virus to other cells in your body. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they have managed to apply the technologies that have been under development, the uh, mRNA vaccines of, uh, sorry, uh, strategies that are used in the Moderna vaccine and the the, uh, Pfizer vaccine, Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that they've managed to make advances or develop a vaccine that's so efficacious, 94 to 96 percent, is startling. And it, it opens the door for the possibility of vaccines for other things. Mm-hmm. So I no longer I use when I wrote the book I was sort of wanted to talk about since communication and language is so much a part of my practice mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about the the fact that the word cure had been obliterated from the conversation mm-hmm. rhetorically was dangerous I felt it at the time and I've I recently did a flash collective a few years ago at the New York Public Library that where we actually talk about that. Like, until there is the will to find a cure who benefits from being on a medication for, for life. Mm-hmm. The difference between a cure and a therapeutic means that you have to have insurance, you have to have regular testing, you have to take 30 pills a day sometimes. And there's a huge difference if you're, if you're not well between a therapeutic and a cure. But now I feel like the advances that are being proven in COVID-19 reinvigorate conversations about cures for other types of viruses. That, that aside from the rhetorical question of using the word cure or not. Sure. And um, that very much was a point of the original poster, but it's great to hear some optimism in that regard. Did you get a kick out of seeing Anthony Fauci emerge as the top COVID <laughs> researcher, um, reading about him as the boogeyman of the CDC, I think it was, was very interesting for me having gone the other way. Uh, the NIH, uh, yeah, the National okay. Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Um, this is a conversation I had with Larry Kramer many times because Larry was working on these two basically that he knew they were going to be the last books he was writing. And he was struggling with how to deal with Tony. Like, was he the antichrist or a hero? Uh And uh, he asked all of us who worked with him what we thought of it. And I, I will say in direct answer to your question, it was one of the things that's most triggering to me is to hear, to see all attentions turn towards the CDC, for instance, 
mm-hmm. who for the first 12 years of the pandemic ignored clinical data about manifestations of immunosuppression in women and mm-hmm. didn't change the definition to include some of those manifestations for 12 years, even though it was the number one killer of women of certain ages, and you know, it varied in mm-hmm. which city you lived in, but it's excruciating to see all eyes on the CDC like they're going to be saviors when they were myopic during the last pandemic, I sure. remember. And Tony Fauci, I don't think you could say he was an angel, an angel or a devil. He was, he was a petty bureaucrat who actually saw an opportunity during the early moments of AIDS in America to have uh, an area of concern to address. And as a consequence, I think he was in over his head when it came to uh, HIV. Okay. And the Tony Fauci who exists now is a very different Tony Fauci than existed then. And part of the reason why he is the Tony Fauci now <laughs> is somebody who doesn't make my toes curl up is because of he listened to people in ACT UP, to some people in ACT UP, not sure. everyone. So it's so it's triggering. It's very, you know, but that that is the reality of the ways in which we think about healthcare in America. If you don't come out of the feminist critiques of health and healthcare and mm-hmm. scientific research that have been around since the early days of feminism, you have a different relationship to these questions. Yeah, absolutely. So it's trigger it's triggering. Let's put it that way. Got it. So before we go, there's been so much in this, but I do want to talk about your recent work. I know that probably in every interview you're talking about, you know, 10 years of your life. But um, I was really impressed with uh, the installation you did up in Bozeman, Montana. Mm -hmm. And I've been very interested in your work in Flash Collective. So could you just give the audience an overview of what you've been up to recently? What have you done for me lately, Finkelstein? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the installation you're referring to in Bozeman was called 1933-1984-2020. And it, I've been having this conversation, with again, with Charles Kraloff from the Silence Equals Death Collective. I'm still in contact with almost everyone I've worked with politically mm-hmm. over the years and through ACT UP. When when we were sort of looking at the moment of pandemic preparedness surrounding COVID-19, Charles said, which 1933 are we in? Is it the burning of the Reichstag or is it the New Deal? Both of those things happened at the exact same time and were in response to a very similar set of things. And it really started me thinking about the differences and similarities between the COVID pandemic and the AIDS pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, those two central works are the organizing principles around that installation. And I think it's, it was meant to reflect on which, which America we are mm-hmm. right now and the America, the America of potential or the America of, you know, the reactionary America. Sure. And I think what, what we're discovering about America is there's enough counterweight to the reactionary political moment that 
Georgia went blue. Yeah. As, as one example. And Trump is a one-term president. So that work was meant to be a med- meditation on that. The Flash Collective work has been something I've been doing for a number of years because it be- became very apparent to me that at some point I'm not going to be around anymore. And I want to share as much as I know about collective cultural production with with younger people before I do, because if you read it in the history books, you're reading about the objects that are in museum collections or in archives. You're not reading about what what went into them. So that's why I wrote the book, and that's why I do why I mentor young queer artists and activists and and activists who are not queer, mm-hmm. because I think it's really important to almost all of the strategies that I draw on during these collectivity workshops, the, the, I call them flash collectives, are based on the ways in which ACT UP organized itself mm-hmm. um, or the art collectives that I worked within or the political collectives I worked within organized themselves in terms of communication. And the point of the flash collective is to assemble a group of strangers who have no relationship with one another to go on the record and make a public work about a social issue in a limited duration period of period of time mm-hmm. so that there's no second guessing not to say that you know I, I have already admitted we worked on silence equals death for nine months and argued about every part of it so not to say that in one day you should be able to make the silence equals death poster but to say you shouldn't worry so much about this being the only work you ever make. Mm-hmm. The Silent Death Poster was to be the, meant to be the first in a series. So it's important to stimulate the idea that the product is not always the point. The process is often the point. Yeah. Um, and to downshift to the Playwrights Horizon project, which is, as I mentioned, is a series of public works. The first one by Jilly Ballistic, it's star, It's so completely startling. It's it's quite brilliant, and it's going to be on the streets of New York. And as we were beginning to install it on Friday, people in the street were. To, this harkens back to your earlier question as well. Were stopping and looking at it and reading it. The work is about. She took a dollar bill and graffitied it with a talk balloon out of coming out of George Washington's mouth that gives the number of people who have died of COVID-19, mm-hmm. which will be updated once a week by Jilly. And it says, okay, so imagine 300,000, whatever the number is, imagine these are dollars. Now imagine their bodies. Like as a way of equating the questions of capital that are very much at work with pandemic preparedness in COVID-19 or lack of preparedness and making it extremely visceral. And I, Ken Gonzalez Day, the uh, LA artist, is the next installation. And Ken has done amazing work. Your readers, I mean, your listeners should Google him, but about race and representation. Mm-hmm. And Dred Scott is the reason why you can burn a flag in America now is because of Dred Scott's work, Mm. which went all the way to the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. in the 80s and enabled cultural production to be seen as freedom of speech. 
when it comes to it, the image of using the image of the flag. So these are going to, and they're also going to involve uh, conversations. On this Thursday, I'm having a conversation with Jilly Ballistic, a member of Joy Apicella, who's an artist and a member of the art collective Fierce Pussy that also came out of ACT UP. Mm-hmm. and Adam from Playwrights Horizon about public spaces and public art and what, what public spaces mean now in a pandemic and what they've meant in the past. So I haven't run out of things to think about or say, and my work is still about considering the questions of social justice in public spaces and public venues. And it sounds like you've assembled a crack team to uh, communicate that message. It, this Playwright Horizons project sounds so interesting. I wish I could be in New York City to go see all of these installations. Well, uh, they will be documented and on the Playwrights Horizon website, and they've already, and that conversation that we're having is open to anyone for this Thursday, I think it's 7 p.m., if you go to the Playwrights Horizon website. It's going to be an amazing conversation. Two people who who are on their second pandemic and have been making work about uh, these questions for decades, mm-hmm. and two people who are thinking and working about these questions now. It should be... They're some of the smartest people I know. I think I'm really excited about the conversation. So I think it'll be worthwhile. And it will also be available on the website if you're not able to listen live. Yeah, I will definitely check that out. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of what we're talking here. And I suppose to close out, um, I wrote as my last question. So obviously things are pretty fucked right now. Do you see a playbook from your life and your work, as well as the questions that you're tackling right now for arts activists and young people today to match their artistic output with social and political engagement. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been working with uh, the Center for Artistic Activism, with the Free the Vaccine Project. Um, I've done some work with Four Freedoms. Um, There are tons of people doing work around these questions of social, social justice. So I think that the, I think we're, we're in that moment. I think um, I, when I do talks, I tend to use the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand as the, the matrix for understanding the entire 20th century, because it triggered every war and political event practically that, that Mm -hmm. happened. We are in that moment. That happened in, you know, the first two decades of the 20th century. We are in this moment of transition right now that will change everything about the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So open your eyes, listen to everything, and pay close attention. This is that moment. Advice that we would all do well to heed. Abram, where can people find you, your work? Um, Do you have social media? Are you active online? How can they reach out? Okay, so I have an Instagram. (laughs) I'm on Facebook. I have a website, abramfinkelstein.com. Surprisingly, no one wanted that name for their website. So I got it. (laughs) 
yeah, exactly. So it has all of my current work. It talks about the book. It talks about flash collectives. There's updates on news. There's show, recent shows. There's a lot of information there. Okay, great. And I can say as a successful result of the experiment, he does respond to his emails. So <laughs> um, this conversation... Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm impressed. Um, I certainly wasn't expecting it. This conversation has been really great. I am so honored that you took the time, and thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure, Aiden, and thanks for reaching out to me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to keep up with the show, uh, hear about any new episode releases, and get some behind-the-scenes info about the process of creating the show and hear more about the figures that I talk about, you can follow me on Instagram at starvingartpod. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you gather some strength and encouragement from the work that I'm doing. Talk to you soon.